0: Well, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. I hope that you all are doing well. You've had a a good week. If you would, if you would, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. I decided we just need to start over. Just kidding. After eight weeks of summer in the Psalms and then five weeks of preaching a series on deacons, it's time for us to return back to Exodus. Um, it's hard to believe, at least it was to me, that it was um, just in June when we finished uh, our, our last time in, in Exodus, so where we finished chapter 13, and we left where Israel had just left Egypt and they've come up to the, to the Red Sea. And that's where we will be in chapter 14. However, before we jump there in chapter 14, today I would like to um, recap what we have seen thus far in chapters 1 through 13. I know June doesn't sound too far away, but it does seem like there has been a lot of water under the bridge since then. If you ever watched a show, a television show, where they divide it up into different se- uh, seasons, you generally would know that on a, the, the next season or even in a sequel to a movie, they, they give a, a brief uh, recap at the, at the beginning so that you know what happened either in the previous episode or the previous season or the previous, um, a previous movie a previous movie because often there's there's many months or even years at times that, that come between the two seasons or the or the, the two movies. Uh, you, you, you kinda you know that right? You see that and it's usually like a minute and a half and it helps you to remember and recall what's happening in this particular characters and what's what's going on and, and even those seasons that leave you on a cliffhanger at the end, you know what's What's gonna happen, right? Who shot Jr. Kind of moment, and there's only a few of you that really know what I'm talking about there. Um, you, you know, like that kind of leaves you on the on the edge. Even after a couple months or even a year, the next season you need something for a few minutes to kind of bring you back into the story. Or uh, or how about um, the the Lord of the Rings movies by Peter Jackson, where the first in the first movie, the extended edition, is almost 40 minutes of just like recapping what you didn't realize if you didn't know The Hobbit, right? And it tells you all about the ring, the importance of the ring and where it came from and and how it ended up where it ended up. And so even though for us, it's only been three months since we've been in Exodus, again, like I said, there's been a a lot of water under the bridge. And so today, like like a good television show in a sense, I want us to take us back to the beginning so that we can understand the whole story of what God is doing in the book of Exodus as we move forward into chapter 14. So the, the, the book of Exodus is one of those books in the Bible that is like the basic building blocks of the Bible. It is, tells some of the greatest of stories of, of the scripture. Some of the greatest miracles of stories happen within the uh, uh, the book of Exodus, but not just that, but even more so, what it theologically teaches us about God in those stories, but also in his in his law. So Genesis is quite important. It is the beginning, right? It is the creation of all things that God spoke by His very word. It's the stories of Noah and the Ark. It is God calling out Abram to be the Father of his people, the promise to, to Isaac that he would put his name on his people and that he would dwell with them. His covenant, right? His first Covenants with his people that start all the way back in the Adamic covenant to to the Noahic covenant and to the Abrahamic covenant. All of these promises that God gives in Genesis. And then Exodus comes right on the, the heels of Genesis, not only continuing the story, but continuing laying out the foundation right next to Genesis as these two great pillars into the rest of the narrative of God in his revelation that we call the Bible. In the story of Exodus, it is this grand masterpiece that has held significance for the entire human race. It, it historically defines the existence of the Jewish people, doesn't it? Right? In this story of, of what we see in the Exodus, it gives hope to every captive and to every slave in hopes of freedom. And why? ...because the Exodus shows us that there is a God and He saves and He delivers His people from bondage. And for us as Christians, it's, it's one of the clearest examples in all the Old Testament... ...of God's first great act of redemption, and that points us directly to the cross. But as amazing as the narrative is, the story is, and as, you know, as wonderful they, 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 that they are, it's wonderful, we don't want to miss the main point... Theologically, the theme of Exodus is not just about babies and baskets and plagues and death angels and Pharaoh and and, uh, the the parting of the Red Sea. But it is about the revealing to us and to his people, Yahweh. In fact, the, the Jews often call the book of Exodus the book of names. because It is there where God shows his people his name. Yahweh. Exodus is about the glory of God through saving his people, by delivering his people. And so as a Christian church, right, we we look at Exodus because it's pointing us not only to Moses and the Jews, but it is explicitly pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to the To the gospel, because it's laying out a a pattern of redemption and salvation and uh, and substitution. And all of that then flows throughout the rest of the, the Bible. It is the same pattern by which you have been saved and by which I have been saved for the glory of God. Exodus is not about man. It's not about Israel or Moses, but it is a deeply theological work that is about the Lord who works out his glory by saving his people in real time history. We see his mercy, we see his love, we see his holiness, we see his justice and his righteousness and sovereignty. In Exodus our only hope we see is a sovereign Lord and he sends a deliverer. He is our only hope. He is their only hope. He is our only hope in leading us to a promised land. And my goal this morning as we walk through these chapters that we would see this grand meta narrative of God not just in Exodus but we see it in all the bible we see the goodness of God to save his people for his glory because brothers and sisters you were saved for the glory of God so in chapter 1 the oppression of Israel in verses 1 through 7 shows us that continuation right off right after Uh, Genesis right to right into Exodus that it is a historical book we see the history of Israel now flowing through into Exodus and particularly there in those verses we see the Lord's faithfulness right in the multiplication of his people even in a foreign land where they no longer are a family but they turn into a nation but right there in these verses show to us should show us one great problem before we even move forward from there and that one great problem is this god's people do not belong in egypt and there's the great problem let's look at verse 8. it says and now now there arose a new king over egypt who did not know joseph and he said to his people behold the people of israel are too many and too mighty for us, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and will escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities and pit and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Here's God's faithfulness. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were dread of the people, right? We see the fear that is, that is imposed upon the Egyptians because of that. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom was name was Shephira and the other Puah, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see on them the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives come to them and so god dwelt, dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong because the midwives feared god he gave them families and pharaoh commanded all his people every son that is born to the hebrews you shall cast into the nile but you shall let every daughter live you see as god's people they were not immune to darkness and difficulty were they Comfortable, Taking care of once in Egypt has quickly turned on them. Fear is what drove Pharaoh into the psychopathic descent into evil. But, but God here shows himself, as we, as we walk through that and read it, we see the sovereign hand of God like a bright shining light, not only in the multiplication of his people, but the faithfulness of these Hebrew midwives. God is sovereign and His light shines even brighter in the darkness. And as we in Christ, we understand that we, uh, that we understand that it, it is in the darkness when we see the brightest of all the lights. It's when we come to understand that in that darkness we see that light so much clearer. God's love, God's care, God's provision, God's promise, and His sovereignty For Israel did not end in Genesis 50. And nor does it, brothers and sisters, nor does his sovereignty in love and care end for us at the cross. He's sovereign in sending his people to Egypt. He's sovereign in multiplying his people. He's sovereign in raising up this new wicked king in Egypt who would not know Joseph or even care. And we certainly cannot understand, and we don't understand all the ways of the Lord, but He still is God, and He still is righteous, and He still is holy in everything that He does, in all of His ways, He is still God, even in the darkness. Isaiah 40, verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, and are accounted even as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes us up the coastlands like fine dust. Even in the darkness, brothers and sisters, the Lord showed his sovereignty to prosper his people despite this evil and darkness. We prosper in suffering. We do. It may not be prospering like the world, but it is prospering by faith. It's prospering by faith because we are forced in our suffering, in our darkness, to look to Christ. To depend wholly upon Him. And all of those superficial things pass away very quickly in suffering. It's in these times in darkness that we need to be resolved like the Hebrew midwives and be courageous. To not take part in such wickedness. But to delight in the righteousness of God and to fear Him more than we fear suffering or any danger that could befall us. And already, right here in chapter 1, we see massive themes developing, don't we? The sovereignty of God. We see the suffering of God's people. We see obedience and perseverance. In chapter two, we see how God saves His son. Look at verse one with me. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that, that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and doped it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank and his sister at a distance to know what would be done to him stood at a distance and the daughter of pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and while her young women's walked beside the river she saw the basket among them in the reeds and she sent a servant and she took it and when she opened it she saw a child and behold the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said this is one of the hebrews children and then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the girl went and called the daughter, the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away from away from the Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and He became her son. She she named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. And as we see the big story of how these Hebrew little boys are being thrown into the river, the story zooms in onto this one family, to this mother. Who saves her child by, by creating this little ark. And putting them in the river and saying, God... Your will be done. And God says, look what I can do. Not only will I save this child, but the one who is killing the children will be the one his family will be raising. And not only that, you will be his nurse. And so the story zooms in on these darkest moments of a family, thinking that all is going to be lost. This son is surely going to die. Harsh times are here And seemingly, in the midst of the story, as we get to read it, we see the silent, mighty hand of God as he sovereignly intervenes. Providentially working out his plan to deliver his people out of slavery. And why? Through this baby? Because he told us all the way back in Genesis that he would do so. Now hear this, this is how the Lord often works, doesn't he? He uses the most unlikely ways with the most unlikely of people to save his people and to deliver his people. What does he do? He sent an infant child. Not exactly the plan that we would come up with. We would want an army raised up to bring about great deliverance. That's mightier. That can crush them. And yet God sends a baby boy And he sends this baby boy not only into the most dangerous, hostile situations that any baby boy could ever be born in. To deliver his people. The most unlikely, ironic means to deliver his people through this baby. And yet God then delivers this child from the seed of the serpent. He flips it on its head. And the, the point here for us is to see, is to be encouraged again by the sovereignty of God. By the sovereign hand of God to save his people in the most unlikely ways from Egypt. Brothers and sisters, how has God saved us from our Egypt? Our Egypt was not an egomaniacal psychopath killing children. And yet he is nothing in comparison to our greatest enemy, our Egypt, to all mankind. And that is sin and death. God sends the most unlikely a baby. He sends his son, an infant, to save his people. In chapters 3 and 4, we see how God sends now his son to save his people. God sends a son to save his people. So God sends Moses. He, he's raised up in the family of Pharaoh, as I already said. And eventually Moses flees Egypt to Midian because he ends up killing some guy because he's angry. and He thinks that he can, he can get the job done on his own. But the Lord takes him out of Egypt and into the land of Midian where the Lord puts Moses through a training camp of hard work and hard living in the desert for 40 years and preparing him to be the deliverer. He makes him a shepherd for decades of of training so that he would be prepared to be sent. And why? Because the text tells us there at the end of chapter 2 that God has heard the cries of his people and he remembers his covenant that he has made with Abraham. And so let's look at chapter 3. And now Moses was keeping the flock of his father and Jethro with the priests, the Midian, and he, uh, and he led his flock to the west of the wilderness, to the, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of, the, of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off, your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land with a good and a broad Land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of, out of Egypt? And he said, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you as I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and they say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel. Gather them together and say, The Lord, the, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out up of affliction of, of Egypt and to the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and the Hivites and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they also will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king and say to him, The Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go into a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do. And even after, after that, he will let you go. And I will give his, this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall be asked of of her neighbor and every woman that lives in her house for silver and uh, gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And so here here in chapter 3 is one of the greatest scenes, I think, in all the scriptures, besides what we see in the New Testament of the resurrection and the transfiguration of Christ and such. One of the greatest scenes in all of the Bible, the burning bush, where Moses encounters the holiness of God. He encounters the presence of God. And as we, we talked about when we looked at this passage, that the Lord condescends, right? He comes to Moses in a fire, representing the presence and purity and the holiness of God. And the Lord stands Holy here above his creation, and yet mercifully condescends in such a way where Moses can see and Moses can hear. This was no casual conversation, however, that just because God has condescended here in this way, this is no casual conversation between a human authority speaking to a servant or a boss to an employee or a father to a child. This was God. The only God, who is just by his very presence, he makes the ground holy. And he speaks commanding authority. And man's response, Moses' response, tells us everything we need to know about this interaction, about this encounter. Moses hides his face from God. He was afraid to even look at God. Brothers and sisters, this this understanding of the holiness of God, the the terror and awe of God is is not popular religion. It is not popular Christianity. God is brought down to us. Man brings God down to us to our level. And we treat him like he's one of us. We treat him like he's just a friend or a friendly grandfather or a divine butler. Yet holiness, the holiness of God, particularly we see in this passage and other places like Isaiah 6, reveals to us that the the holiness of God demands man's posterity and humility and fear and awe and terror. Moses was utterly overwhelmed He couldn't even look at this manifestation of God. And we cannot miss this here. We cannot forget that the holiness of God and how fearful the thing it is to behold. And as creatures, when we are reminded of this, when the fire of the purity of God is before us, it is terrifying. And why? Because we are such a finite and sinful creature. The Lord tells Moses his name. I am Yahweh. He reveals his name and tells him, I am eternal. I am unchanging. I am immutable. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God of Jacob is the same God who is revealing himself to you today to deliver you, who is holy and righteous. we see the grand theme and the narrative that Exodus is displaying and showing to us about God? That as his people we are to remember, but also here not only do we see the holiness of God, but we see the presence of God. The presence of God to come to his people. God knows he could, well, that, that we cannot save ourselves. Do we know that? Do we know that we cannot save ourselves? There is no no amount of, 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 of progression, of progress, of technology, or anything that can save ourselves. In fact, we are only worse in our technology, in our progress. We've only come to new ways to destroy one another, to destroy our own lives. God knows we should know we need him to come to us we need god to condescend to us does that sound familiar (laughs) and even in this we see in the holiness of god in his condescension in his presence to his people we see the unbreakable love for his unholy people To bring his people to himself and say, You will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will take you into the promised land. God has eternal promises and eternal purposes for his glory and our joy for his people. Again, I ask can you see the grand themes of the glory of God to save his people? In chapter 4, we see here what the great, holy I Am is going to do. He's going to deliver his people, and he sends them with, uh, with, by signs and wonders, and without an outstretched arm, he is going to subdue Pharaoh. And the Lord chooses Moses to deliver and go to Pharaoh and make his demands to be known. Now, we know from chapter 4 here, or excuse me in in chapter 3 moses was pretty reluctant chapter 4 moses is pretty pretty reluctant but god still sends moses to go and the lord tells us here in chapter 4 to moses but i will harden the heart of pharaoh and why would why would god do this and the reason is is because the lord has his purposes for his glory to be displayed In Egypt, his sovereign power and his righteousness to be demonstrated in the destruction and judgment of Egypt. And at the same time, his glory is then displayed to his people by loving them and caring for them and delivering them and keeping his promises. And that is why the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And that is, again, an ongoing theme, not only in Exodus, but we see that throughout the Scripture. The salvation of Israel over and over. The salvation of his people over and over again. And so Moses returns to Egypt and he brings the people to the side and he gives them the signs and wonders. And and really for one of the only times ever, it seems like, Israel worships and believes and says, let's go. But as things go in chapter 5 and chapter 6, the, the snake strikes at the heel of the son, the seed of the woman. Moses goes to the Pharaoh and he commands him, the Lord has come. And the Lord has said, let my people go. But according to Moses, things don't go as planned, does it? Look at chapter 5, verse 1 says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to the Pharaoh and said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But listen to what the Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Is not the, the unbelieving lost world saying the same thing? Who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And they say, the God of He of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a 3 days journey into the wilderness. He's pleading with them. Let, let us go that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. And the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And here's where the snake strikes back. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. On the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people in their form, and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as it is in the past, and, and let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry. Let us go, offer sacrifice to our God. The snake strikes back. As it does, it bites because it's raging, it's rebelling against the word of the Lord. It rejects the name of God. We see that throughout chapter 5. It rejects the name of God and only believes in its own name, in its own authority. But again, we, we have to be reminded even in this chapter where things seem to go bad. We must remind ourselves what is the worst that the snake can can truly do? Can he make work harder? Yeah, he does. God's people face earthly consequences to their obedience to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we still live in a fallen world, and there are consequences to our obedience. ...to God's word. And yet what is often thought... ...to be used for evil... ...Pharaoh's consequences here... ...what does God do? He uses them for his glory... ...and for our joy... ...to produce endurance... ...and character... ...and hope. A living hope. A living hope that is more glorious... ...than anything that this world can offer... ...because we know it's God's people... His love is being made more and more known to us. It becomes more real in our hearts. And so when we get to chapter 6, no wonder the the Lord comes back to Moses and to his people and reminds them and reiterates and encourages their their hearts on the promise. He says in verse 1, he says, Now you shall see what I will do. "...what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out... ...and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land." Verse 2, "...I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Look what I will do. I am the Lord." Verse 5, "...I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel... ...whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt." I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arms with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord. So, what's the theme? It's God. (laughs) I'm doing this, Moses. Don't worry about Pharaoh and his straw. You don't need it in the promised land. I am the Lord. The snake strikes back, but the snake can only strike back so far. He can only bruise his heel. And this reminds us of what Jesus said. In Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so as the snake rages and strikes back. We see in chapter 7 verses, chapter seven through 12 how God begins to crush the snake. And here's where the showdown begins. Moses and Aaron bring this frontal assault back to Pharaoh. Let my people go. And they bring this assault against Pharaoh's sovereignty, right, of all Egypt and all of their false worship. And it begins with this one sign, right? He throws his staff before him, and the staff turns into a serpent. And Pharaoh uh, looks to his magicians, and his magicians, they, you know, they throw him down. They say they're, they're hocus-pocus, and they turns into the, the serpents. And Pharaoh's like, what God is you if we can do the same thing? Shows that we're either just as powerful, or if not more powerful. But then the sign for Pharaoh to see is then when the serpent of the Lord... Swallows the serpents of the the magicians. The fight is on. The fight is on, but this fight wasn't going to be equal. Because here, this little sign here of the serpent of the Lord eating these serpents was a sign to them, a foreshadowing of the coming ten attractions, the ten plagues. The first plague in chapter 7, where the Nile River is turned into blood. The second plague, where the, in chapter 8, where the frogs infest the land and the croaking is everywhere. In the third plague, chapter 8 as well, the gnats infest everything. Gnats. Could they be worse than where we live? Yeah, I think so. But it gets worse. If you don't like gnats, how about the flies? The fourth plague. And I think what we see here is not only the the attacks on the worship and the gods of of Egypt, but also the comforts of Egypt. The comforts of Egypt that they gained through the enslavement of other people. God takes takes it away from them in the smallest of creatures, doesn't he? Destroying every bit of their comfort with frogs, Gnats and flies. The fifth plague comes in chapter nine, where where the Egyptian livestock is struck with the d- disease and they die all across the land. And the, the the sixth plague, also in chapter nine, boils swell up on all the bodies of the Egyptians. Now the attack is really getting close to home, isn't it? The seventh plague, also in chapter nine, the hailstorm comes and destroys all the crops. Destroys all the crops of Israel, or all the crops of Egypt, excuse me. And then the eighth plague in chapter 10, the locusts come, and they finish off everything. They decimate all the plants and all the fruits and all the vegetables of the land. And at this point, the economy of Egypt is absolutely destroyed. And then the ninth plague. In chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, there's darkness over the land. And the way that it is described, it is a darkness that can be felt. You ever had that kind of darkness? You ever been in that kind of darkness? You go in a cave and they turn the lights out. And they leave that off for a while. Darkness that can be felt. In all of the land. And each plague, as different as it is, was still doing the same thing. Destroying Egypt's systems of belief. Everything that they depended on. All their false gods, all their worship, all of their wealth, all of their prosperity, all of their comfort. And each of these signs systematically goes at the heart of their culture and society to show them that the Lord God, Yahweh is the Lord. Pharaoh, you will know my name. And then we get to the tenth plague. In chapter 11, read with me there. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and for gold and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man of Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to every firstborn of the slave girl who is left behind in the mill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down and say, Get out, you and all the people that follow you. After that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. Now, this was just the announcement that God gives to Moses, but also Moses then takes to Pharaoh. The announcement of this devastating plague, devastating sign. And the Lord tells them exactly how it's going to happen and the why and the how. And because he wants them to know once again that he is sovereign. He is orchestrating the whole entire thing. That he, the Lord, is keeping his promises not only to judge Egypt, but to deliver his people from out of Egypt. He's keeping his promises. You know, as a moral people, we sometimes would look at acts like this that God would judge in such a way to kill the firstborn of every child of Egypt. And we understand that the intentional killing of another as a moral people, created as a moral people, that that is a moral act. To kill is a moral act. And, and so as a people, as sometimes human beings, we will look at this act, and people do. They look at this text and they say, see, God is, God is not good. They say, God is acting immoral here. And again, as we've seen, right, throughout this whole scripture, right, that it's absolutely to completely miss every little bit of what we've already been talking about. To to misjudge the Lord in such a way as to, to miss exactly what he says of himself that he is holy and that he's righteous and that he shows himself to be holy and righteous. And that as God, as sovereign, as Lord, I am that he alone is able to exact that kind of justice upon the Egyptians. And the Egyptians absolutely deserved to die. They were a wicked people. I mean, the evidence is right there. They were throwing babies in the river to die. They were enslaving people. They deserved it. They are sinful, right? They were sinners by nature. They rejected God, and they failed to honor God as God. They worshiped creation and idols rather than the creator. And the same in Egypt as it is today, the wages of sin is death. In Adam, all have sinned and, and has inherited from him this sinful nature. God would have been justified in putting them all to death. Not just Egypt, but also the Israelites. He's justified in all, because they are all sinners. And here, when we zoom into the story, Moses going to Pharaoh, he, he looks at Pharaoh in verse 80, and he gets angry. He's angry, and he's frustrated, because he's he, he, can't, he can't comprehend it. You don't understand, God saying, I guess I'm his heart, and my, this is going to happen. But he looks at him, and he's frustrated, because he's seeing a man with such a hard heart, a stubborn heart, that even after these nine plagues, he would rather stay in his stubbornness and in his wickedness and let everyone's firstborn child die than to repent and to be obedient to the Lord. And the big picture here is that in Exodus and what it shows about all of the Bible, not just the Israelites are guilty and the Egyptians are guilty and the guilt of Pharaoh. We see all of that here. The big picture of the Exodus in all of the Bible is the same thing about the fate of all of humanity, that we all deserve death. The wages of sin are death. Right? We already said that. We're all sinners. We have all sinned. And because we are in Adam, we sin. And the punishment for our sin is death. Romans 6.23 And so when God chooses to claim a life or demands eternal punishment of torment and the gnashing of teeth, He is always justified in doing so. So the real question when it comes to these kind of acts of God is we ask ourselves, not God, how dare you, but God, why not the rest of us? Why not all of us? We're all sinful, we're all rebellion, we're all shaking our fists at, at God. We're all going to die one day. That is the curse of sin upon us all. And we'll face divine judgment as we deserve. But good news, this isn't the end of the story, right? In chapters 12 through 13, the Passover at Exodus happened, right? Chapter 12, the Passover comes. The Lord instructs his people. Hey, this is how I'm going to deliver you. This is how I'm going to pass over you. Remember, they're guilty of sin too. They need a covering. They need a sacrifice. They need a substitute. In God, in his grace, in his mercy, he provides for them a sacrifice. Just as the Lord provided for, for Abraham bef, uh, for Abraham before he was going to sacrifice Isaac, He provides for His people a sacrifice in a lamb, a lamb without blemish, a year old, and that was to be killed at twilight. And then they would take the blood of the lamb and they would they would paint it onto the doorposts with the blood over the over their houses, over their doorposts, so that as the, the Lord came, He would pass over when He saw that they have been covered. By the blood. That sounds like a song. Nothing but the blood. He provides a substitute for his people. Again, the big picture. Right? The the big grand theme. Again, we're all guilty. We're all deserving of death. Again, the wages of sin, of your sin, is death. The wages of my sin, brothers and sisters, is death. But for God's elect, for his people for his church, for those who have believed and trusted by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has provided a salvation and a deliverance that is not just from slavery of sin and to sin, but he has delivered us from the just wrath of God that was toward us. Because of the Lamb of God that came and his blood was spilt and covered on the ground and on the cross to take away our sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that shows the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God and the love of God. Like his divine judgment and his divine election of his people and his work to deliver his people through his son. And the exodus is showing this pattern of how God saves his people. And he's telling you how much you need him as a savior. You need that blood. You need that substitute. And I want to read one more passage before before we end this morning. Chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let his people go, right, so this is the exodus, after the exodus lets his people go, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds and they see war and return to Egypt. But God led their people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made, uh, made with the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth to the encampment of Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Verse 21, And the Lord went before them that day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and at night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night, so that they did not depart from the people. And what do we see here again in the Exodus? We see the very presence of God the presence of God in the form of a cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to lead them and to guide them through the wilderness of the unknown. All right, in Genesis 15, the covenant with the Lord, with Abraham, the Lord passed through in a cloud and as a flaming torch. The Lord reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush of fire In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended into heaven and was received in the clouds. In Acts chapter 2, the presence of of God came in the Holy Spirit upon the disciples like a rushing wind. And how did they speak? They spoke with tongues of fire. And what's the picture here? The very presence of the Lord to his people by this cloud and the fire. Has the Lord not also given us his presence is this something that has changed from Exodus to now, that God now doesn't give people his presence? Well, that's absolutely not the case because we know that Jesus tells us, told us that, that in those days, right, right that, that when he leaves, that, he was, that the, 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 the Holy Spirit would come, the third person of the Trinity would come and indwell within his people. And even Jesus himself said that is a greater presence with you than me. And then you can believe that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is greater than if a cloud, a pillar of a cloud, would show up today. And a pillar of fire by night. That would, it's greater that we have the Holy Spirit guiding us and leading us through the wilderness of the unknown in this fallen world. Romans 7 tells us that the Holy Spirit is reminding us and has written upon our hearts the law of God. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that since we are now in Christ, we are not in the flesh, but rather we are in the Spirit. And because we are in the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God dwells with us. It is the Holy Spirit that leads us in our understanding that we are adopted as sons. No longer slaves, but as children and heirs with christ we are led by the holy spirit brothers and sisters not in this mystical weird experience in which we receive some new knowledge or some new revelation from god but we are being led by the holy spirit in all things as he guides us through the word of god when you resist and you fight temptation and you say yes to christ brother do not doubt that you have not been led by the holy that you have been led by the holy spirit Every time your heart is set on on the heavenly inheritance in which you delight in. Rather than treasuring earthly things. Brothers and sisters, that is the Holy Spirit. We live by the Spirit, the presence of God with us. Putting to death the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and of the world. So that we can have hope and courage. Because of the presence of God is with you. Because the Holy Spirit is with us. The big picture. The narrative, the meta-narrative of the Bible. The good news of the gospel is all over Exodus. And as we've seen this morning, just in these first 13 chapters. So I ask to you, again, beloved church. Did you see what the Lord was doing in Exodus? And how that pattern exists still today in his church. That you have been saved for the glory of God and to make you to be a part of a people, his people. In Exodus, we see, we see God in all of his glorious power, all of his righteous judgment and holiness and sovereignty, but we also see his love and his presence and his provision. But what we have in Jesus Christ is far superior to what Moses had, or even to a sacrificed lamb. We have the Lamb of God. We have Jesus Christ. And and as the Exodus shows us, yes, we are sinners. It reminds us that, yes, that outside of Christ, we are lost. And if we are not in Christ, we are slaves of, into, in our own Egypt of sin, and its end is death. But I hope this morning that you have been encouraged in such a way, in such a way that you may this morning say, praise God, hallelujah, what a Savior. And all of God's people say,